So we are in an Advent series we're calling Unfinished Story. And this is because Advent reminds us that we're living in a story that's going somewhere. But God's Word, and frankly, our lived experience, tells us that this story is unfinished. And so we learn to wait. Advent is a season for me personally where as I'm reading the Bible, I'm aware of how many times God is asking His people to wait. And so we wait. And what we've been doing in this Advent season is reflecting on all the unfinished stories in the Bible. And so first we looked at the first chapter, or really the last chapter of Nehemiah, where there was so much momentum... And then it sort of sputters out with failure, frustration, and futility at the very end. And then week two, we looked at Ezra when they finally finished building the foundation of the new temple, which had been destroyed. As you would expect, there was all kinds of celebration, but then creeping in, we see and hear weeping. Something wasn't right. And it was the old saints that knew it. And so we saw how that uh, Advent gives God's people a unique accent of both joy and sadness. Major and minor keys. Joy turned to ten and sadness turned to ten at the same time. And that really is an Advent accent. It's a waiting accent that we all have. And this morning... We're going to fast forward to the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry in Acts chapter one, because this is the moment, if you think about it, when Advent, as we know it, really begins. You know, think about it. He's about to leave his disciples in Acts chapter one on the Mount of Olives, thus ending his first Advent. But as he leaves, he gives them a promise of return. His second advent. And so why don't we just take a look at this text. We'll pray. We'll ask God uh, to speak to us this morning. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Let's read along. So when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. In the Bible, a cloud is always a sign of God's presence, his glory. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly. Lord, would you speak to us this morning for your servants are listening. We confess that your word has power. 
And so we ask that you would indeed empower your words and empower our lives by them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So every once in a while, uh, my wife Josie and I find a show we both love on Netflix. I said every once in a while. Uh, But this may not surprise you. I am very slow when it comes to finishing these shows. You know, some people binge Netflix, I've heard. I I sort of sip Netflix. That's sort of my way. Uh, And so what happens is my wife, on the other hand, needs resolution. So she will, without any shame whatsoever, skip ahead to the last season and the last episodes and just find out. Which is like way against my rules. Like, that is not okay. But I've grown to see it's, it, it is okay. It's actually quite healthy. She and all of us want resolution. In fact, I think it's a great picture, a fitting image of the Christian life. Because we, as I said, we are all in a story that's going somewhere. We sort of know how it ends. Jesus is the hero. We're waiting for him to make all things right. We are all standing east of Eden. And we want him to come and bring us back. And we know that will happen. We get signposts in the scriptures that it will happen. We get promises. John gives us his revelation at the very end. He shows us that it will indeed happen. We take God for his word. We see Jesus, his life. We see his resurrection. So we know he's good on his word. And yet there is a tension because our lived experience is terrible in comparison to that final day. And that is a tension that many of us are finding hard to live with. And we want resolution. We want to fast forward. Just, we just want to see this all come to rights. Your hard marriage, your difficult relationships, your stress, your emotional pain, your physical sickness your regrets that you're living with, your anxieties about the future. All these things sort of build up and create a tension with the, fu- with the promised future that we all have in Christ. And we just want it resolved. So, if that is you, I think the first chapter of Acts is going to be really helpful. Because... Acts chapter 1 is when Advent as we know it officially begins. And what have we been saying about Advent? Advent is the season of tension. It's the waiting season. It's the life between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And, and, And think about it. It is the season of tension for these first disciples. As they said in this passage, they were expecting the kingdom to come in its fullness. Of course they were, right? Of course they were. Jesus is resurrected king of all. And they're looking at him on the Mount of Olives. What do you expect? And so they asked the question. They said, are you at this time going to restore? Restore the kingdom. That word restore encapsulates every hope of every person who has been trusting God. 
And Jesus says, hold your horses. And that must have been terrible. That must have felt terrible. And I think we can relate a little bit to how that must have felt to them. He says, keep waiting. But that's not all he says. And this is why I think Acts chapter 1 will be helpful if you feel that tension like they must have. Because what he does in this text is he gives them and therefore us two orienting statements to help them wait. I mean, we all know that last words are a little bit more significant famous last words or parting words. We all sort of listen in if somebody's on their deathbed and they have something to say. Well, in a way, what we have here is we have Jesus's final parting words to his disciples, if you think about it. All of what Jesus says is powerful, but think about how powerful this must be to them and to us. What does he say? Well, he gives them two words, two statements, I think, that are worth a lifetime of reflection. He says, number one, it is not for you to know. And he says, number two, you will receive power. You will never get to the bottom of those two statements. The African church father, Augustine, he used to say, the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature, its meaning grows with them. So true here. And I actually think these two statements, it is not for you to know, you will receive power are meant to orient us in the pitch black of Advent. So let's take a look at both of those, explore them together. I'm just praying that they will orient you wherever you are this morning. So it is not for you to know. That's the first thing Jesus tells us in verse 7. And as I said, and as we looked at and as we heard read, this is an answer to their question. Are you now bringing the promised restoration? I mean, it seems like you did everything you needed to do, Lord Jesus. You died, you were buried, you were raised on the third day. You appeared to 500 eyewitnesses in a 40-day period of time. Here you are standing on the Mount of Olives. We see the temple right over there across the ravine. Okay, right? Now's the time, right? And he says, instead, it is not for you to know. He is inviting them into what I would like to call a holy ignorance. A holy ignorance. He says, in essence, there are some things in the Christian story that you don't have access to. There are some things, there are some aspects, there are some plot points in my story of redemption that is only my father's business. If you look at the text, it's right there. 
the Father has fixed the times and the seasons by His own authority. It is not for you to know. He's inviting them into a holy ignorance. And I think what Jesus says here really kills the root of what I call the Christian myth of omniscience. And it goes like this. Because God is all-knowing and I am in relationship with God, therefore I must be all-knowing. Or at least I should try to be all-knowing. And if I'm not all-knowing, then something's wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has this ever seeped into your life? Have you ever experienced this myth before? God is all-knowing. I'm in relationship to God. Therefore, I must be all-knowing. Like we have special access to everything by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. And we expect every answer to every question. But here we have God telling us explicitly that there are just some things that we can't know. This is a holy ignorance. Holy because God imposes the limit. Yes, I, I know some of you are thinking, yes, God calls you to know his word. God calls you to grow in knowledge and obedience. I know that. But he also calls you to say, I don't know. And I think growth in our discipleship and our walk with Jesus is learning to know the difference. Jesus equips you for Advent and the waiting that is in Advent by inviting you into a holy ignorance. I think living with holy ignorance, because I'm just learning this myself. I mean, after all, I sort of chose to be in this theological tradition, in this church that you're sitting in, has a high value, if you didn't know, on sort of Bible and theology and, and parsing out the scriptures as best as we possibly can and not playing fast and loose with what God has told us. And I chose to be in this. I didn't grow up in this tradition. I chose to be in this tradition. And so I am just now learning what it is to willfully listen to Jesus and say, there are some things I can't know. And the closest experience that I can, I can personally attest to uh, that connects to this feeling of holy ignorance is falling asleep. Let me explain myself. Have you ever thought about sleep? I'm sure you have. <laughs> okay. Well, sleep is a surrender. It's a surrender, really, right? If you think about it. I mean, we're very, uh, in our culture today, we feel like we have safety. We have locked doors and all kinds of things. And, um, and so sleeping, in some regards, doesn't feel as much of a surrender. But in ancient cultures, especially in many parts of the world, it is a surrender to sleep. It is a, it's a, there are night watchers all over the Bible for a good reason, okay? So, so sleep is and always will be a surrender. It's sort of a white flag from our soul saying, here I go. I'm going to sleep, right? And so uh, we say some things are just out of our knowledge, out of our control. And God, I will just trust you. Uh, Even the Book of Common Prayer, which is a prayer book in the Anglican tradition, uh, they have prayers that sort of orient you towards sleep. And it says a lot of this, like, like, Lord, you are king. I am not. Therefore, help me go to sleep. 
And I think this is at least one reason why we can struggle with sleep. But what if we receive Jesus' words this morning, it is not for you to know. I think we would start to practice saying, I don't know. I think for many of you, this is your first step. I think for many of you, myself included, this will be a difficult discipline to say, I just don't know. We need to embrace our limits. There are just some things we are called to know, and there are other things that we will never know. If you want to think about it in terms of imagery, uh, behind me is a, is a picture. That line right there is the creator-creation distinction. God is in heaven. He's the creator. Everything else, visible and invisible, that he spoke by, into existence by the power of his word, is below that line, including us in our minds and our stories. Okay, And so all of the Bible is basically that arrow pointing down. The Bible that we have, Calvin would call it baby talk to us. God is engaging in baby talk to us. He is speaking to us. He condescends is the word. He goes down into our world. And everything we know is because he has deigned. He has, he has lowered himself to be in our presence gladly. Okay? But here's the thing. We forget that line or we maybe make it a little dotted line. The truth is we don't have access to what's above that line. And so we need to practice I don't know more and more and more. Which I think will possibly help us experience the freedom and the joy of holy ignorance. Okay, so I'm I'm calling, I want to invite you to see holy ignorance as a good thing. If you should choose to accept it. You don't have to agonize about the things with the asterisks. Okay, so what's, what's on that asterisk in your life? Your future, right? Your own personal story. Maybe you're anxious about something. Maybe uh, there's parts of God's Word you just are struggling with you don't understand right now. Okay? The discipline of holy ignorance. I mean, the disciples, they wanted to know when is the restoration happening? And Jesus comes to them and says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. It's fixed by the Father. It's not for you to know. And there can be a freedom when you sort of uh, rest in that fixedness of the Father. I love how Paul expresses holy ignorance in Romans chapter 11. He writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Listen, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. How above the line is God? For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is Paul. Okay? This is the teacher, Paul. This is in Romans, the greatest legal document ever composed. And he is saying at the end of this argument with so much rich exposition and and, and detail. There comes a point, friends, where we just don't know. And that to me is beautiful and actually helps you worship, which is what Paul does in this text, by the way. He just sort of breaks in into worship. Well, you are God. I am not. Oh, my gosh. I worship you. John Calvin, he goes here too. And you might think John Calvin is this, is this mind, this brain that is maybe the biggest proponent of the myth of Christian omniscience. But I would like you to listen to what he wrote. He said, when considering the hidden mysteries of Scripture, we should speculate soberly and with great moderation. Cautiously guarding against allowing either our mind or our tongue To go a step beyond the confines of God's word. I love that phrase. The confines of God's word. And this is not an imposing, constricting confine. This is like Wrigley Field. A friendly confine. (laughs) Scripture is a confine of safety. So, it is not for you to know. Jesus tells you this in Advent. He told the first disciples this. He tells you this now. He says something else, though. There's a but. He says it in verse 8. Do you see it? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the earth. So first, he gives us limits. He tells us we can't know everything. And then he gives us a consolation, power. You will receive power. So, if he gives us a holy ignorance, he also gives us an empowered witness. An empowered witness. It's empowered, and we are empowered, because when Jesus leaves, he gives us his Holy Spirit. In John, Jesus tells his disciples actually that it will be better for them if he leaves because that way they get the Holy Spirit. The power of God comes on every believer. The power of God rests on every believer. The Spirit of God, God the Spirit, empowers you. This means that our power source for all of life is no longer our flesh. The battery of our life, if you want to think about it that way, is not your willpower, your upbringing, your resolve. The power in your life is the Holy Spirit. Paul says you are a new creation. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the first creation and is now hovering over you. A new creation. Which means 
that this is nothing short than a new way to be. This is a death and a resurrection. It is not like self-help literature, which says you had a mistake and now you can improve and learn from it. No, no, no. No, the Bible narrative is actually full-on death, full-on new creation. And in that new creation, you have a new power source, which is no longer you. It is the Holy Spirit empowering you. This has been compared uh, to the difference between a paddle boat and a sailboat. Who's been on a paddle boat lately? Anybody? Anybody been on a paddle boat lately? Those things are really terrible, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like you're going, like you're spinning. If you were on a bike, you'd be going too fast. You know what I mean? You would be dangerous to everybody around you. You'd be going so fast. But on a paddle boat, when you're paddling really fast, in my experience, you just kind of do this. (laughs) All right? And then if you have someone with you, it sort of straightens things out. But you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. That's that's what it's like to live in the flesh. That's what it's like to live by willpower. That's what it's like to be, frankly, religious, even a religious Christian. Oh, but, but Jesus says in this Advent season of darkness, you have power. You are empowered by God. That is your battery. That is now your source of life. You are like a sailboat. Sailboats. Think about sailboats for a second. A sailboat is, is participating with the wind. I love this painting because the wind is making the movement, but the person on the boat is surely not just chilling out. You know what I mean? There's not a passivity with the sailor. <clears throat> there is an activity with the sailor. But that boat is moving. You know what I mean? That boat is moving. This person is setting their sail saying, I can't move the boat. Something outside of me has to. Oh, but I'm involved. And that is the perfect picture for empowered witness. It's a sailboat, not a paddle boat. You are not passive, but you are not moving the boat. What are we empowered to do? What are we empowered to do, though? Well, Jesus says to be witnesses to the whole world, if you take a look. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were standing, in all of Judea, which was all of the land around them, Samaria, the nation north of them, and then the ends of the earth. And so what we have here is we have an empowerment to do a very specific thing, which is be a witness to Jesus. In fact, it makes sense that the Holy Spirit would empower us to do this because it's the Holy Spirit's job, really, we see in the Bible, to point to Jesus, to exalt Jesus. And so what does witness mean for you? What does it mean for me? It essentially means that we, in our weakness, point to Jesus. The power of God is mighty, on weak people. Do you feel weak? Do you feel completely out of control? Do you feel like you have zero to offer God or other people? Do you feel like you're going to screw up any minute? 
Or are you feeling regrets because you have? The Spirit of God rests powerfully on you in those moments. Powerfully. And you are making witness to Jesus who is sufficient and King of the world. Man, in your weakness, you are powerful. Fleming Rutledge, uh, she, she calls our empowered witness during Advent the Advent enigma. And I love this because it really does get after this image. The Advent enigma is that on the one hand we're waiting and on the other hand we're hastening. And she gets this from 2 Peter 3.10 where Peter says, We are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Two words that seem absolutely contradictory, do they not? We are on the one hand waiting for the coming of God, and on the other hand we are hastening the coming of God. And she calls us the Advent Enigma because it is. Which is it, God? Do we wait and hide in our bunkers? Or do we hasten? risk our necks to love our neighbor. (laughs) In Fleming Rutledge, she's a genius. She says both. It's a waiting and a hastening. She calls it action in waiting. The sailboat. So Jesus is sending us on a journey this morning. Jesus, yes, is leaving us. But he's also leaving us with two important things. It's like a minimalist backpacking. (laughs) Anybody familiar with this whole subculture of minimalist backpacking where you sort of lay out everything that you think you need to go on a long through hike. We're talking a long through hike, like many, many weeks. And you think to yourself, okay, what is the absolute minimal that I need? And we're shaving like milligrams off of my backpack. Well, this reminds me of minimalist backpacking in the dark. Advent is like a journey through the dark. But Jesus gives us two things that we can wear. And it's all that we need. So Belden Lane, he talks about backpacking as a spiritual discipline. Well, Jesus is sending us on a through hike. And he gives us a holy ignorance and an empowered witness. He gives us two statements that is all that we need. It is not for you to know, and you will receive power by my Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would indeed empower us.
can fuel worship in our hearts as we come to our limits. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.